0: Hello, and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Today, we're sharing our conversation with Liz Asai, CEO and co founder of 3 3Derm has developed a cost-effective skin imaging system that allows non-dermatologists to take clinical quality 3D skin images remotely. Dermatologists can use the uploaded images to efficiently monitor high volumes of patients' lesions while reserving in-clinic appointment times for patients whose images indicate a more alarming condition. 3Derm aims to revolutionize the field of teledermatology by providing greater access to dermatologic care. A week after our initial interview in August 2020, 3Derm was acquired by autonomous AI platform Digital Diagnostics.
1: Thanks for joining us today. I'd love for you to share the story of 3Derm with our listeners, particularly sort of taking us back to your time at Yale and where the idea sort of came about. Yeah, sure. So way back when, in my sophomore year, my friend Elliot,
2: who actually is now my co-founder and our CTO, he was designing all sorts of random medical devices. That was like his hobby. So he had this one idea for a laparoscopic surgical probe. We started building this more as like a a research project. So the original thing was, let's try to publish a paper on this. So we built a very early prototype of this device. And in the midst of doing all this, we got an email about a competition run out of Boston called CIMIT that's looking for primary care innovations, and they were giving away these just enormous prizes. So they're giving away hundred grand prizes for the ultimate winners of it. So we immediately thought, okay, how can we take this project and how can we transition to something that could be where we could enter into this competition? At the same time, we had made contact with some of the dermatologists at Yale who liked the idea of doing the 3D imaging of tissues, but what they really wanted was to be able to take a 3D image of the skin's surface so that they could get those images remotely and then be able to actually diagnose patients in the same way that they would if the patient was in person. So they were looking for standardized views, and the 3D surface view was kind of interesting to them because they didn't know what sort of extra information that could give versus a normal picture. So we switched gears, we applied for this competition, we became a finalist. So they gave us $10,000 for being a finalist, and then you basically have six months to get as far as you can before you enter the the final stage. So we basically just didn't sleep for six months. We we built a a prototype of a skin imaging system that could take 3D images of the surface. We got IRB approval for a clinical study, and then we ran a 50-patient clinical study at Yale Derm. And that study showed really promising results. I mean, it's 50 patients, it was just feasibility, but we were able to show that the dermatologist who looked at just the images caught all the cases of skin cancer, so 0% false negative. And then we had a reasonable amount of false positives, so a lot of uh, a lot of cautious dermatologists reading these images. But it was enough to say, okay, we think we know that there's a problem here that we can solve with this sort of tech. We just need to keep refining it. So we won $100,000, which is great. Uh, at the time, we thought we were rich, and we started putting that money towards incorporating this as a company and starting to develop the the next stage. We started engaging a medical device manufacturer. We worked with them to. Generate the next prototype, which was the first device that really could be manufactured at scale, had all off-the-shelf parts, and really looked like a, a more formal med device. We we applied for an SBIR grant. So the phase one of the grant is 150k. Um, you basically have to propose the risky research that you're going to do that might be hard to get funded by like a typical VC. So for us, that was building this next prototype, and then we put it into another clinical study at Yale. Uh, in this one, we were testing not only this new prototype, but also the next generation iPhone that had just come out. And then we also tested it against dermatologists who got to see the patient in person. In this study, it was... Maybe not an utter failure, but it was pretty close. It was it was definitely some some dark times back there because we what we realized is that this new prototype that we had made because of all of our trade offs of making things cheaper and more off the shelf and less custom, the pictures just weren't good enough. So when we had dermatologists look at our images, we saw them miss skin cancers that they didn't miss in person. We had some like retrospective meetings where we had the dermatologists who had seen the patient in person. A dermatologist who looked at the iPhone image to say, you know, what is in this image that made one of you say, yes, it's cancer, biopsy it, and one said no. And the one in person would say, oh, like this picture doesn't capture what I saw in person. know, I looked with my dermatoscope, which is like a, a very standard optical device that dermatologists use. They were saying like, oh, I just used that. And I, I saw some features that were you know, dead riggers for malignancy, and I biopsied the patient. So we Coming out of this study, we realized our device did not work. Our attempt to see if iPhones would work also did not work. So we were kind of stuck because at that point, we felt like we had a lot of information to kind of bound the problem, but we were running low on cash. Elliot and I, uh, my co-founder, were kind of at a crossroads of, do we keep investing our time and go for this or do we go
0: get real jobs? So when you were at those crossroads, how many years had it been since you had first pursued this idea?
2: Yeah. So this is maybe somewhere between like two and three years in. At that point, we had joined an accelerator that uh, is meant to incubate early stage healthcare companies. And we had learned a lot about the business model that would be required to, to pair this solution with in order to actually get us to market. We felt like we really had all of the kind of foundational blocks. We just needed a lot more capital. So we decided to go for it. We raised our first institutional round of capital and that gave us the capital to go one more shot at building the next prototype. So for that one, we went kind of back to basics of what are our exact optical specs we need to build? What are the views that we need to take of a patient's skin lesion or a a rash or acne uh, in order to make this thing useful? we started incorporating like dermatoscopic views since that's what dermatologists had available in clinic. It made sense to give them that view remotely. And at this point, since we had moved to Boston and we were backed by Blue Cross Blue Shield, we were able to get a connection to UMass, which is a big academic med center in central Massachusetts. And the head of Derm there agreed to pick us up as a research project and say, okay, if this new device is Truly better and can and can do this. We want to test it here. We want to run a full clinical study. So we did 350 patients, and we're just going to compare apples to apples. So we ran a, a very cool clinical study out there where we had dermatologists examine a patient in person. We then were able to image the patient with our multimodality device and collect uh, some kind of basic information. And then we passed that telederm case to three separate dermatologists within their department who had not seen the patient in person. So we just generated a ton of data out of the study. And because we were working closely with the clinic, we had access to the biopsy data if biopsies were taken. So we were able to have a ground truth that we compared both the in-person dermatologist to and the panel of remote teledermatologists. And that study showed that we had an on-par sensitivity and specificity to an in-person dermatologist.
1: It's amazing how you have sort of jumped from institution to institution, from resource to resource in order to, I guess, validate your business. And you were able to do that. And I think this was really helpful in you laying out your journey. Another question I had was, what was Yale Dermatology's interest? Of course, in academia, you know, you want to contribute, you want to write papers, but did they have any commercial interest in what you were doing? And how did you navigate that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think at the earliest stages that we were at, they didn't really have a commercial interest that this was more of a research project and let's help these students because they're part of the Yale family and this is a really cool technology that could help people. We didn't really have a, a core commercial focus until we had moved to Boston because at that point, I mean, Blue Cross would show the reason why they were interested is that they thought the technology we were developing could eventually help lower cost of sending patients who didn't need to go to dermatology. So that's really when we said, oh, okay, there actually is a large market here for building this sort of system into a larger telederm triage system. Before that, it was really, you know, we have this cool device. We think we can keep iterating on it. We need to be able to test it in in a research environment. uh, And that's really the the years at Yale.
1: What made you want to translate this from a research project into a commercial business? Because a lot of folks, I think, are in this situation, especially people are doing research at the medical school. There's also, you know, there's this inkling, if you're working on something that can impact a bunch of people, commercialization might be the way to go. How did you make that decision and who assisted you in making that decision? The project kind of took on a life of its own.
2: I mean, I never thought I was going to run a startup. I initially thought I was going to med school, thought I might be a consultant. I just, I mean, I never had the bug of, I must start a company and be my own boss. My co-founder, completely different story, he grew up in the Bay Area, so he knew it was going to be a startup, he just didn't know what it was going to be. So I think initially, when we started this project, we still had one of our old applications says, we're going to try to publish two papers on this. That was our goal, was to just contribute to the the literature that was out there. But as we started moving, and we saw so much validation from healthcare executives that were more on the, the business side saying, oh, you guys really have something here, it helped to kind of push us in that direction of, oh, like, let's try this. Like, why not? Let's start a company and see if this works.
0: I think you've laid a great framework for the steps that you took from research project to building a company and everything in between. And we've like mentioned the product and the products that you have, but it'd be helpful to kind of um, have you walk us through what, how the products work. So you have like the imaging, you have the telemedicine, and now you have the diagnostic arm, um, but focusing first on more of the imaging and telemedicine pieces of 3 Can you walk us through how they work and how they fit into a primary care and dermatologist workflow? Yeah, sure. So on the Telederm side, we work mostly with primary care
2: offices. So we give them a, a camera that's mostly used by their medical assistants so the camera is, um, we like to say it's, it's less fancy as we get more and more sophisticated here because we can use better and better mobile technology as our base. And then we have lenses that help us replicate some of the views that a dermatologist expects to see in person. So the device right now at Primary Care is a, it's actually an iPod Touch that has a special lens that can flip over the, the mobile camera. And the smarts on the device is now more in the software So we have an app that runs on it that helps the user take good photos. So they enter in some pretty basic information about whatever the skin condition is. We focus on imaging spots, rashes, and acne. So it's almost everything you could imagine being referred to dermatology. So they enter the information. They say, what is this condition? What is bothering the patient? And based off that information, we determine what images they should take. And then when they're taking the images, we have some image guidance features that are pretty cool that do things like pose selection, image quality, and just things that really make it so that the medical assistant who's taking it doesn't have to have any prior experience with skin imaging. They could just pick up this device and image a patient. We do do a training course. So the average user is trained for about 10 minutes. So they they go through like a test case before they're allowed to actually use this in person. But it's very minimal. This is not like a hour course that you have to go to, to learn how to image skin. So that helps a lot on the primary care side. And then those images are transported via our telederm software to dermatologists in the field. So we build out these networks of dermatologists who read all sorts of skin cases that come in. And for them they have what looks like an inbox and if it's a primary care group that they're working with, they'll have their patients come through as specific cases. When they go into those, they can look through all the different images. It kind of looks like a radiology pack system. So it's as if they're like any other visual specialty where they're reviewing the images, they can make notes. And then the main decision that we're interested in is a triage decision. So most of the time, this is actually no appointment needed. And then they give treatment notes to the primary care physician of, Usually, it's watchful waiting. So, if it's this is a benign age spot, this is you know watch for these changes. The changes occur, then refer the patient. In a very very small subset of cases, it's I see an urgent condition. Please get this patient in immediately. And if they hit that option, our team has a completely different workflow that really scrambles the troops to make sure that patient gets in immediately. So we it, it's infrequent, but we do get the case where it's you know I'm pretty sure this is melanoma. It looks like it's advanced what can we do to get this patient in? And then our ops team takes over and really kind of shuttles the case through to make sure that the patient gets an appointment.
0: I can see like, okay, primary care, it helps with kind of streamline their, the office visits and such with patients. But like, what's the incentive for dermatologists to get this, to have this done for them?
2: Yeah, the dermatologists get reimbursed per case. So one of the things we had to do early on when we were commercializing this is go to each of the payers and convince them to reimburse dermatologists for doing this. And when we started, there really was no reimbursement, especially so. Our first state was Massachusetts, and I mean, still to this date, we have no comprehensive telemedicine law on the books, uh, which is just absurd considering how progressive Massachusetts is. So many other healthcare fronts, but that meant what we had to do is basically go to each individual payer, convince them, here is the cost savings model. Here is the reports that we're going to give you to show you that you're not over utilizing care here. And we we convinced one that gave us the template to go convince others. And we've just kind of built a network of, of reimbursement from there.
1: That's totally amazing, I'm, I'm in shock. So what data did you present to the initial payer? I'm assuming it was Blue Cross? Uh, our initial was actually a small payer
2: called Neighborhood Health Plan, which is now rebranded as always. It's a health plan that's owned by partners up in Boston. And what was cool about our clinical study is that it was a good collection of the types of cases that are typically referred to dermatology. And we were able to use that clinical data to generate models for payers of this is how many cases we think we can refer or that we can screen out at primary care. And these are how many cases we think we'd be able to identify early and expedite to derm to give payers a solid map of this is the cost savings we think you're going to experience. And a good out of, and if you don't, here's how you shut off our service. So for them, I think it all was about mitigating the risk to show that this is why we are pretty sure this is going to work. And if you're not seeing these cost savings, you can stop reimbursing the dermatologist for this. But so far, we've kept everyone on board.
1: I think even now with COVID, there's been a huge shift to telemedicine. And, you know, the, the laws have been more relaxed and welcoming of telemedicine. So I think you're sort of on to something. What do you advise our listeners who are building companies that are looking to approach payers? How do they go about that in the most effective way? And how did you initiate that first contact?
2: By being backed by Blue Cross early on, it gave us some perspective of how a payer thinks and how a payer goes about their reimbursement decisions. Initially, I think maybe when we were too bright-eyed of entrepreneurs, we thought that you know payers, if If you convince them that this was truly life-saving and it wasn't cost prohibitive, that it would be a solid argument for reimbursement. And I think what we realize is that payers are constantly being pitched on life-saving innovations. I mean, there's so many technologies who want to be reimbursed. And for them, it's really they have to manage the entire patient's care. How do they do that in a way that doesn't break the bank but does keep adding these innovative technologies. So I think we have a much greater appreciation for how hard it is for them to actually decide what gets reimbursed. They aren't the uh, evil villain of healthcare that I think sometimes they're made out to be. We interact with a lot of people at payers who, it's, oh, right, because you're like us. You guys are like entrepreneurial and you're trying to, like, with the resource that you're given, you're trying to deliver the best care for patients. So I think that appreciation definitely helps when we're pitching payers because we know to frame it as, here is the life-saving innovation we're doing, here is all the pain and suffering that we are preventing, and here is your bottom line. And this is like, here are the five ways we're going to measure this to make sure that you're not spending more than than you can.
0: Now I want to look and think about the future of 3Derm and I know that 3Derm has expanded its product offering has now this like diagnostics arm to it and recently your diagnostic algorithm got breakthrough designation. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you build these algorithms? You know, do you take into consideration because dermatological abnormalities can present in different ways and different skin tones and such. So how do you take that into account in your algorithms, etc.?
2: Yeah. So what's funny is when we first started this project, so when we were back at Yale's undergrads, our original idea was we were going to build a standardized camera. Elliot has, I mean, his background is in machine learning. So the idea was let's build a really standardized camera and then we'll just do the diagnostic on the software side. We even went as far as kind of building out some prototypes of the, the diagnostic algorithm back in 2011. And at the time, kind of across the board, all advisors, all investors, all clinicians said, don't do this. Don't do the AI piece. Don't mention this. That's going to scare people. And it's way too far off. It's kind of a pipe dream. Stick to something that's very doable and with less technical risk. So we heard that feedback. And I do think that feedback was accurate. I think in 2012, if we had gone out there and pitched this as we're going to do AI for skin, that it would have been not well received by the market. But What we ended up building was a Teladerm system that collected these really standardized images, and we learned how to standardize the imaging process for all sorts of different skin conditions. So that gave us a good library to start from when we were building our diagnostic algorithms. And because we knew a lot about the skin imaging process, that those sorts of insights definitely helped us craft a diagnostic algorithm that really kind of understood the medium. And how are these
0: algorithms regulated?
2: So as opposed to Telederm, which is very much in, the FDA has basically said that those sorts of technologies are in enforcement discretion. So at this point, Telederm is very non-regulated. And I think that's almost to a fault in some ways. I could build an app that just says, take a picture with your phone and send it to a dermatologist. And as long as that dermatologist reads it, there's no quality checks, there's no There's no guardrails in place to say, like, what lighting conditions did the patient use? Was it just a dark room or is that spot darker? It's all putting the liability on the dermatologist. And as long as they agree to read, it goes. AI is a very different case. The FDA has put out pretty clear guidelines of what makes a med device and that certain algorithms are software as a med device. Um, So we fall into that territory. And what we're doing is we're going through this process with melanoma, squamous cell, and basal cell as our main targets. Those are the three main types of cancer. And we're working really closely with the FDA to make sure this is done right. And the type of AI that we're building is called autonomous AI. So most people, when they hear about AI in healthcare, they're they're talking about assistive AI. So a common example would be like radiology, where if, someone's, uh, if a radiologist is looking at an x-ray, they might have software that says, here I've circled where I think there's fractures. So the radiologist can speed through cases even faster and say, okay, yep, I agree, that's a fracture, that's a fracture. Next case. And a lot of those algorithms are paid for by just a subscription service because if a radiologist can read cases twice as fast, they can make twice as much money in that same period of reading. So radiology is just a very—it's a fascinating case study. There's an entire market of algorithms pitched at radiologists to try to make them more efficient, more accurate, and make their experience better, but For a lot of specialties, that sort of market doesn't work. For dermatologists, I mean, a lot of these cases are either very complex, where it's going to take a a while for them to read it because they have to go through maybe a list of medications and a case history before looking at the images. So that's a pretty long case. And the, the cases that are more, that could really be sped up by some sort of assistive AI would be like, I give a dermatologist a picture of like a very generic age spot. They immediately on site say, that's an age spot. So even if our algorithm could speed up that decision, make that twice as fast, it's not really the differential that could lead to a business model of a dermatologist being able to get through more cases. So what makes sense in a lot of specialties is to actually build autonomous systems where you take that decision and you remove it from the specialist. So you give that capability to say like a primary care physician where they take a picture and for them, they're not necessarily trained to say, Oh, you know, this exact lesion on this patient's back is actually precancerous, and therefore I'm going to refer them, versus this other spot that looks nearly identical is just a benign age spot. That's the sort of nuance that dermatologists are great at, and that primary care physicians, and they might have a month of derm training in their entire life between the start of med school to being a practicing physician. And there's just no way for us to get the knowledge base of dermatology to primary care physicians to be able to make those sorts of diagnostic decisions. So that makes this the perfect place to inject a technology like autonomous AI, where a primary care physician can take a picture, algorithm can tell them whether or not it's skin cancer, and they can make a referral decision based off of it. But inherently, that carries a lot more risk than assistive AI, which is why the FDA has a very clear path of this is how these devices are going to be regulated, moves the bar up for clinical testing. But it's something that we think is worth putting in the effort to, to build towards.
1: How does uh, liability work? And also, you mentioned there's the network of dermatologists that's reading these images for the telederm part. Say the patients from Connecticut, can a dermatologist from Massachusetts or Oklahoma read these cases? Or can we cross state lines given you know the nature of physician licenses? So in telederm, it is very tricky to cross state
2: lines. The recent changes based off COVID have made it a little bit easier for certain types of patients with certain insurances, but it's, there's still restrictions in place. And we imagine a future that is more back to normal, that eventually some of these restrictions that have been lifted might come back into place. So right now, what we typically see is that if a patient is in Massachusetts, they need to have their case read by a dermatologist who's in Massachusetts. Um, There's the interstate pact to have reciprocal licenses. So certain states have joined together to say, if you're in my state, you can be read by another state who's all participating in this pact. Massachusetts has not joined that pact. But that's kind of an effort that we see as a hopeful. I mean, optimistically, it sounds like they continuously are adding states to that pact that maybe in the future we'll have, we won't have these restrictions.
1: You know, if if more states get on board and sort of the laws are become more relaxed, maybe you can even have uh, triage be even more sophisticated and have multiple, even a higher end of dermatologists weighing in on a given image, and that would just like increase the strength of the opinion that's that's out there uh, for a given image.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's like a whole industry of startups that are tackling just that of the second opinion of how do we make it so that we reduce overall management errors by bringing in another physician, uh, And then there's companies who are developing algorithms to say, can we flag specific cases that we think are more open to these errors and only pass those to second opinion? So I think we're definitely going to see some of those technologies come to market soon. That would really be a game changer. We're not working on that. <laughs> That's out of our wheelhouse, but I think it's very cool.
0: So... We've been talking about the algorithm piece and how you build it out and such. And bias in in AI and such can be a, a huge concern. How has 3Derm worked towards ensuring inclusivity and trying to eliminate any bias i mean we have and this issue has come to the forefront a lot more recently with mind the gap and new england journal of medicine is also and like their instagram accounts have started putting pictures comparing and contrasting various dermatological conditions in white skin versus black skin and such so how is 3derm trying to address this
2: yeah, there's multiple fronts of this from the technical perspective of where we need to make sure that we're not building in bias. The first is on the imaging side. So if you are using like an off-the-shelf camera, almost every camera is calibrated to think that the average color in a picture it's going to experience is gray. And that's fine if you have pretty light-skinned people in the, the picture, but as soon as you get to medium or dark skin tones, you're going to need a completely different calibration point. For the camera in order to actually capture the picture so i'm of asian descent sometimes when the camera is not calibrated i look very yellow and that's when i know that the calibration point is off so what we do is we color calibrate our cameras to make sure that we're actually capturing the right skin tones uh, and i mean a lot of that comes down to blocking out all the ambient light when we take the picture in order to make sure that the only light that enters that image is from the lumens of the LEDs that we know of. And that helps us make sure that at least we're starting from a base of this is truth of the skin tone. And then on the algorithm piece, there's the data that we train with. We have to make sure that that is both standardized with that color calibration and diverse. And when we come to points where we realize, you know, we don't have enough diversity of a specific condition that we're imaging, that means that eventually when we think about the claims we're going to make for that algorithm, that we take that into account. So what that means is basically like if we're say we're making an algorithm for a made up disease, like disease X, and we realize that we only have darker skinned patients in our training set for disease X, if we eventually make an algorithm to detect that disease and it gets through the FDA, we should put on the label that this was trained and validated. On darker skin patients. So if if you have a lighter skin patient, you might not see the results that are up to this bar. And that is our overall philosophy of how to make sure that there's a lot of transparency here. Uh, And what has happened for most of the past uh, of med devices is that they don't report those sorts of biases. And what it means is that you could be using a device and you think it should have pretty good accuracy, but it might not for a specific patient because that patient wasn't represented in the the training set. And that's what we're
0: trying to counteract here. Got it. I wasn't aware of that transparency piece that there are folks that don't disclose that. And so then I can see how that translates into inaccuracies when you implement the technology and the device.
2: That's been the standard for for all sorts of drugs and med devices. I mean, plenty of drugs are only tested on men, but the label doesn't say, here are the results if you're a man. (laughs)
0: Yes, that's very true. And then for like pregnant women, for example, there are certain drugs they might have to take, but, but because they're not actively recruited in clinical trials, doctors are wary of administering certain drugs. No, that, that is very true.
1: Will you consider doing a clinical study that looks at race and gender in the future to sort of validate that your technology works? Or is this something that's sort of already assumed given the number of patients and the cohorts that you've been able to assemble with your studies? Yeah, so for
2: our studies, we we try to go for the the widest diversity of patients in recruitment. And I think the ideal that everyone wants to get to is that every study has enough diversity that then that you don't have to have anything reported afterwards because your sample actually represented the full population. But I think the the near-term solution is if you can't get that population to just have the transparency. And for us, what that means is for certain conditions, if we don't have a diversity that we want. We can run additional trials later that have much longer timelines until we hit the recruitment and then have a secondary set of claims based off of the longer running study.
0: As you reflect on the past eight or so years that you've been working on 3Derm, what are some challenges you faced and any lessons learned that would be helpful for women interested in starting a company in this space?
2: One thing I would say is that there's a lot of negative press about how hard it is to raise funds as a woman, how to really to go through the entrepreneurship journey as a woman. And I think you need to hold kind of two truths in your head at once. You have to know that those biases are out there so that you can spot them and make sure that you are on top of it and you're, you are factoring that into how long it's going to take to raise and who you should raise from. But on the other hand, you have to, as Mindy Kaling says, have the, the confidence as if you're raised as a tall white man. You need to go into the, the situation as a confident entrepreneur, as if you don't have those biases. I think that's the, the trick is that in the current system that we're working with, you are clearly at a disadvantage, that you have to almost pretend that you don't have it in order to succeed. Because when you go into these meetings, they aren't seeing you as uh, the same as if you were a man or if you were older or more experienced um, and all those biases definitely hurt. So you have to be so much better if you wanna actually raise the same amount of funds and have the same amount of success.
0: Thank you all so much for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare and our website at theahc.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests.